Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron books of our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien. Mm. Now, today, my particular friend Ian Bradley is joining us on the men from COVID. Yeah. Sending out warm wishes and and uh, lots of healing. Happy that he's not headed to China for work <laughs> as a UK bioweapon. Yeah, maybe some other time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Ian, <coughs> you know, us, yeah, there you go. Catch us up. Oh, we should leave that in, Sam. Get <laughs> the call, right? <laughs> Oh, very good. So thank you. And hello, everyone. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm coming in a bit Russell Crowe this week. We'll do our best. Let's talk about where we were last time, because last time we were three chapters in to the Wine Dark Sea. Stephen's friend, Nathaniel Martin, had lost interest in natural philosophy, was talking constantly as well about his investments, We've turned him into this very materialistic kind of cove now. Uh, we had learned that the nipperdollings of today, of the contemporary time in the novel here, had grown out of a political party advocating complete equality and no private ownership. And this particular affiliation and this particular set of values was clearly lining up somehow with the teachings and the preachings of this fella, Dutoured. Uh, Stephen had heard Dutour talking to the Nip Dollings in particular about equality and the rights of man. Uh, meanwhile, the Franklin, with mostly the Sethians, and the surprise with mostly the Nipper Dollings, had been functionally set to rights. They were back to fast sailing. They'd had their rigs repaired. Dutoured had meanwhile got the chance to listen in on the music making of Stephen and Jack from the cabin. I uh, had appreciated it. So that was where we were last time, Mike. This time, we're going to hear more about political differences that abound aboard, across rank and across class and across different kinds of experience. We're going to hear how Stephen and Martin's relationship seems to have been hulled below the waterline. Tom, meanwhile, has got the Franklin armed and looking beautiful. People, in their various ways, suffer from salt and from the lack of fresh water. And meanwhile, opinions about our egalitarian friend, Mr. Dutour, are sharply divided. And it's time to divide the spoils. Wow. He had a lot going on in this chapter. Yeah, for sure. Lots and lots. Well, we join Jack sort of wrapping up a purser's conference with Mr. Adams, and he takes the opportunity to weigh himself, having just weighed a lot of dried peas here. And he's shamed that he gained another stone. O'Brien writes, he wished to hear no more flings about obesity, no more facetious remarks about letting out his waistcoats, no grave professional warnings about the price big heavy men of a sanguine temperament had so often to pay for taking too little exercise, too much food and too much drink, apoplexy, softening of the brain, impotence. Well, Jack, we find him walking intensely back and forth on the empty quarterdeck, watching the highly skilled workers around and putting the finishing touches on the surprise. And as he's, he's watching all this and walking back and forth, he happens to see Emily and Sarah go by carrying their hen coops in the morning with Jimmy Ducks. And he notes their rapid growth, which makes him start to wonder about how his girls back home are getting on. You know, and, and, and I couldn't help but notice that like Emily and Sarah, Jack's daughters also switch easily from lower deck English to quarter deck English as the occasion demands. And I, and I wondered if that's not also what helped, you know, bring Jack's thought back to home. And maybe this switching of languages leads Jack to his next thought. 
Yeah, which is dealing with a problem that, to be honest, he's had a few times in the last few chapters in between losing people in action and in between losing people away to the command of prizes. He's got another empty slot here. And he's thinking about asking Wilkins to fill it by acting in as third lieutenant until they reach Kayao. That makes Jack think of all the young men that he's encountered who had passed for lieutenant but had remained as senior midshipmen or as master's mates because, as the text says, they did not pass for a gentleman. A mute, unwritten, unacknowledged examination result announced only by the absence of a commission. Now, Mike, we've heard about this before, this tendency in the, the new Whiggish Navy of the early 1800s to expect people to, to, to demonstrate that they fit into the upper social classes as well as having seamanship skills. This is happening much more frequently, supposedly for what is called here a more homogeneous mess with less friction, the hands having greater respect for a gentleman than for their own kind. That, that's what the text says, and this is all despite the fact that this excludes very famous, very capable, respectable seamen, including Captain James Cook, and it reflects standards that are unspoken and that vary according to who's doing the choosing with no appeal possible. And Mike, we've, we've noticed how this has held back Tom Pullings. We encountered some of these attitudes as, as far back um, as Lord Clonfort in the Mauritius Command. And we can remember more recently, Lieutenant West judging Vidal by these same criteria. So turning now, Jack sees several people. He sees Wilkins. He sees another Ansomer mate who's allowed to walk on the other side of the quarterdeck who've joined him. Four turns later, Jack hears Reed telling Dutour that Dutour may not talk to the captain. And this little sort of verbal scuffle breaks out. Dutour appeals to Stephen, saying he just wishes to congratulate the captain on his playing. And Stephen insists on etiquette here. He says, you must not address the captain. And then Wilkins adds, only those who are invited may go over to the holy windward side of the quarterdeck. And Reed says that even he, Reed, may only address the captain when he's on duty. And this, this gets a very sort of stiff shirt response from Dutour here. Well, he said, recovering from his surprise and concealing a certain vexation moderately well, you are a markedly formal, hierarchical society, I see. But I hope, sir, to match her in, that I may without sin tell you how very much I enjoyed your music. I thought the Boccarini Adagio masterly, masterly. And this is enough to create a sort of diversion in this potentially awkward conversational moment as Stephen walks away with Dutour talking Boccarini in a deep discussion here. So Reed, some barrels of water and two carronades for the Franklin are now lowered into the launch. And mm. and Jack is really happy that he's got all these you know carronades as ballast in the surprise that he can now use to arm the Franklin. And they, they work out really well. They're half the weight of the surprises, 12-pound cannons. They fire balls twice as heavy, and they can be manned by only two men instead of the seven or eight that it would take for the surprises cannon. Now, on the, on the downside, they can't fire very far or very accurately, but they will give the Franklin a 240-pound broadside. Ah, and Jack's loving all this because he's thinking to himself with continued good weather they're soon going to be in the path of some merchantmen and whalers, all potential mm. prizes. And he wants that arm Franklin and the surprise to be able to clean up, if you will. Barton and Dutourd are often heard playing together, practicing sections repeatedly. And you know those people hearing it think, you know, Barton really plays better with him than he does in Jack's cabin. Mm -hmm. But Martin still is not a very happy man. 
you know, Stephen's rarely in the gun room. Detour is often in the gun room and asks indiscreet questions. Ed Martin's found that evading them is often worse than answering them. Now, Stephen and Martin usually nowadays only see each other in the sick berth or in Stephen's cabin when they kind of write down and study their patients' case histories, treatments, and effects, which is exactly what they're doing now. Yeah, and, and we get straight into a conversation here, Mike, that's going to be important for what's going on between Stephen and Nathaniel Martin here for a good chapter or two. Stephen drops a comment about how slowly the ship is moving and also on the lack of fresh water available for washing clothes. He says he's glad to be getting ever closer to to shore to be able to be, as he says it, wallowing in some clear, tepid stream, washing the ingrained salt from my person and chewing coca leaves as I do so. Joy. And Martin replies, I have no notion. This is a really tetchy, really kind of antagonistic reply from Martin here. He says, I have no notion of these palliatives, which so soon become habitual. Look what happened to poor Padine and the way we are obliged to keep the laudanum under lock and key. Look at the spirit room in this ship, the only holy of holies, necessarily guarded day and night. In one of my parishes, there are no less than seven alehouses, and some of them sell uncustomed spirits. I hope to put all or at least some of them down. And having gone off on his little invective here, he adds that he sees drinking as a curse and he desires to preach a sermon telling people to, in his words, to rely on their own fortitude, on fortitude from within, rather than their muddy ale, tobacco, or dram drinking. And Stephen tries to reel this conversation back in and says, well, if a man has put his hand into boiling water, is he not to pull it out? He's kind of appealing to Martin's sense that people are in such a terrible situation of poverty and deprivation that any any release that they might seek is is kind of forgivable. And Martin's having none of it. Certainly, he says, a man is to pull it out at momentary action. What I deprecate is the persistent indulgence. And Mike, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that that's a fling directly at Stephen, not just right. at indigent alcohol drinkers back in his parishes. Right. Well, Stephen looks curiously at Martin. This is the first time Martin's ever spoken to him in a disobliging, downright uncivil manner. And, and rather than reply with a brisk repartee, uh, by the way, an 1800 engram, a quick ready reply. Thank you. Thank you, O'Brien. <laughs> Stephen wonders what frustrations, jealousies, and discontents have produced this change in tone, in voice, and conceivably of identity, because these words and this manner of speaking are so completely out of character for Martin. Now, after a very long and heavy silence, Martin says, well, I hope you do not think there is anything personal about my remarks. Yeah, yeah clearly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, miles away from any kind of an apology. But Martin's last words, this comment, are drowned out by the Franklin testing their carronades and Norton arriving and trying to roar over the sound of the carronades, Captain Aubrey's invitation to Martin for dinner the next day, as well as his request for Stephen to come over to the Franklin to help Pullings, who's put his jaw out again. Ouch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no fun. Martin asked Stephen if, if he should go ahead and come and bring bandages and salve. And Stephen says, never in life. Do not stir. I've known this wound since it was made. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking a couple of things here. You know, number one, just when I think Martin can't slide any lower, he certainly does here. I can't yeah. believe that he's you know, launched this fling. 
directly at Stephen. And, and I'm kind of wondering now, you know, Stephen sounds very polite and all nice. No, 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 you stay here. But I'm wondering if he's not really pissed and, and using this polite response to basically you know, thumb his nose at Martin a little bit. He knows Martin's happier on the Franklin, would be much happier over there right now, yeah. uh, away from Detard and everything. But, you know, now you stay here. I'll go by myself. Yeah, and, and I've been in this game long enough to remember this particular guy and his wound since way back before you were on anybody's radar screen. Yeah, well put. Well, Stephen in due turn goes over uh, and helps out Tom Pullings. He fixes uh, the, the cheekbone and joint, which had been cut through by a Turkish scimitar in an action years earlier. By the way, we, we've known for a while that Pullings had an ugly wound from that particular encounter with the with the Turkish renegade back in uh, the Ionian mission, I think. But it's the first time we've heard any specifics, pretty grisly specifics as well, about just what kind of injury Pullings is left with. Stevens fixed it. He's fixed it before. He's happy to do it again. Um, Tom Pullings, meanwhile, takes advantage of the visit to show Stephen around his new ship. And remember, Pullings has been of the status of a commanding officer for ages now, for some some number of books, and he's actually got to be in command of a ship now, which must be fantastic for him. So he's he's allowed a bit of hubris and to show the Doctor around his new command, I think. And, And Stephen is reminded of the scene way back in Master and Commander, with young midshipman Pullings as he was then, escorting Stephen, the newly arrived landsman, around Jack's first command. That was the Sophie. But this time, Tom is the captain, and he's in charge, and this is his ship, and he's fashioned it already a little after his own ideas. He is responsible for a number of innovations on the ship. He's really proud to show them off to his friend Stephen, who, in some people's eyes at least, has become more of a seasoned uh, seaman. The tour lasts through the afternoon and into the evening as Tom shows off every last little detail. Stephen makes all the appropriate kind of mm's, yes and comments and thanks Tom for showing him his his ship, your ship. And he says, for her size, she is the beauty of the world. She's a very delicate and nice and generous compliment. Tom calls out after him, says, oh, we're not done. I'm, I'm going to show you the new fair leads when we come over to dinner tomorrow. And Stephen is glad that Tom will be at that particular dinner to make the party less awkward. And by the way, uh, fair leads, that's a a fairly standard piece of sailing terminology. A fair lead is a device, a gadget, a hole, a pulley, uh, a turning point for line or rope or a cable to go through and have its its direction of pull kind of led in a fair direction, hence fair lead. Nice. Well... Lagan is caught that evening. Stephen doesn't think about Martin's outburst, but he, he starts thinking about changing identity, you know, how people's identity change, like delightful children or, or early adolescents who turn into a thick, heavy, stupid brute and never recover. Or another thing rolling through Stephen's mind is aging men who would become wholly self-centered, if different to those who had been their friends avaricious oh uh let's see i wonder who that sounds like yeah (laughs) maybe martin right well this reminds stephen of a related but different subject of inconstancy in love Hmm. Hmm. okay well realizing now that his mind is often racing he's unlikely to fall asleep matron heads you know, up on deck, you know, I'm going to be awake. I might as well go walk around. And he starts this really interesting conversation with Vidal. Uh, Vidal has the watch. 
Stephen comes on board and he's noticing all this dew, you know, which is really heavy tonight. And so as Stephen is wont to do, you know, he starts asking, well, do does it fall if, if it falls where does it fall from there's so much of it here how come i can't see it falling and and vidal i, I love this you know little do i know of the do sir you know i can't i can't tell you much you know but he does tell him what he does know he he knows what kinds of nights the do particularly comes on heavy like tonight he knows the effects for a sailor that you know the taste of it isn't good having sort of run down all this slush that they use on the mass but it's still, as he says, uncommon welcome on voyages with little fresh water like this one. He points out that the collected dew can wash the salt from a shirt or even better, a pair of drawers. Mm-hmm. He says how devilish severe the salt is on the parts, as he puts it. And he asks if he can stop by the sick berth tomorrow to get a little bit more ointment for his. And so, Ian, we, we've got... You know, this interesting thing going on here, you know, this this goes on a little while. And, and I'm, I'm wondering to myself, are we getting this? What's going on? All the dew. We keep coming back to this fresh water and the salt. And, and I'm starting to wonder, this is kind of an emerging hypothesis, maybe just a bad idea. I don't know mm. if we had Stephen thinking about changes to a person's identity We're going to have continuing references to these impact of salt through the chapter. We just had this aside about, you know, changing identity, thoughts about inconstancy and love and the do. And and what I'm starting to think is, so clearly we've got this thing that without fresh water on ship, they're, they're, you know, they're really low on water. Salt has a really great influence on people and on their personalities, even more than I would have thought. And we'll hear more about this all through the chapter. And that something as random as do can really counteract this impact here. Now, could the do be simple things? Um, and, and we may not know the source of them exactly, like Vidal was saying, but we certainly know their effects and potential benefits, even when the effects are not perfect, like you know, the do. It, it may be slushy, but boy, when we don't have any water, we're grateful to have it. So, yeah. you know, what does it do is stuff like goodness or faith or friendship or kindness or kinship, you know, all the kinds of things we have in abundance on the surprise when she's the happy ship, right? But these things, it seems like just as the dew can kind of overcome some of the effect of the salt, that perhaps the salt, when there's not enough water, has its own really strong effects. And I'm, I'm wondering, wait, salt, dew, water, if do are these little things, is the water something like love? You know, yeah. fresh water, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I won't even get into living water, but <laughs> the uh, <laughs> this idea. So what might be the salt here, if this is an analogy of some sort here? You know, some candidates in these chapters appear to be religion, philosophy, yeah politics, especially all of these carried to extreme degrees. And, yeah. and you know, certainly we've got lust still playing in here from the whole Clarissa episode. And so if, if this analogy holds true, you know, we should continue to see personalities and relationships and loyalties built on love, friendship, kindness, these water and dew qualities, perhaps eroded or changed by some of these salty things we've mentioned here. Yeah. Um, and maybe... I, for one, will continue to hope for more dew or water to overcome the salt. Uh, 
Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe the speculations of an old man. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think it's really great. And interestingly, all the things that you've kind of picked up in the metaphor as being salt-like are still indispensable. Like we 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 can't do without them. But when they're there to excess, or where they're when they're there and they kind of chafe and cause harm, then it's a problem. Um, I'm I'm going to go with a, a an, another angle on salt, if that's all right. This this idea that salt is indispensable, and this connection to class. And, you know, salt is going to appear as a theme all the way through these next few chapters, the way the moon did a couple of books ago. Salt is a signifier for class in some kinds of society. Um, in Certainly, as a, as, a, as a British, very class-oriented saying, you might say that if somebody is at, at a dinner table sitting below the salt, it means that they're sitting in the, at the low-status end of the feasting table. Sitting below the salt means you don't have access to the salt. Your food isn't going to be tempered with the extra flavoring of salt. So salt is something that's a luxury, but also something that's indispensable. There's a famous tale that is kind of woven out of the story of King Lear, uh, of a king who had two princesses, and they uh, they both told him how much they loved him. They loved him more than gold and silver and jewelry. And he had another daughter, another princess, who said, I love you more than salt. And if you want to go and check out the story of the salt princess or refresh your memory of, of Cordelia in the story of King Lear, I think there's something really significant about salt and how it signifies some kind of privilege i don't know and how it's indispensable but how the withholding of it or the excess of it can be a problem for anybody and if you want to follow up the story of the salt princess you'll see what the consequences are of living without it and living with too much of it and mike this is taking us in quite a philosophic direction here getting back into the story in the book for a second we have vidal now suggesting that stephen should ask mr dutour a learned gentleman in philosophy and morals with scientific Paris friends. What a pleasure it is, says Vidal, to hear him talk about moral politics, the rights of man, brotherhood, you know, and equality. He talks about the colony that Dutour had planned, no privileges, back to salt again, no oppression, no money, no greed, everything held in common, like in a mess with good shipmates, no statutes, no lawyers, the voice of the people being the only law, the only court of justice, and everybody free to worship the supreme being back to their, what was it, misty pantheism that we talked about last chapter, just as he sees it. No interference, no compulsion, complete freedom. And Stephen gave us an echo in the last chapter as well when we talked about the French Revolution of just how much that complete freedom actually played out in Paris in the very closing decade of the uh, the 18th century there. Stephen says, well, this, this plan that Dutour has certainly sounds like an earthly paradise and vidal is really keen to pile on here he says many of our people meaning the nipper dollings say the same thing and what would not have been eager to stop dutour if they'd known what he was about and mike this idea that the nipper dollings are actually thinking well we could be behind this guy uh, dutour this this all sounds like ominous music this sounds like the, the 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 low bass notes and the ominous drum beat in the background here and meanwhile Stephen asks about Dutour's piratical undertakings. He says, well, what about him taking whalers and merchantmen? What about him helping Kalahua against Pualani? And Vidal's got a rationalization for that. He says, all the privateering, that was the Yankee sailing master, but it's the colony that had actually pleased everyone. Peace and equality, decent life without working to the bone at the old age. Again, Vidal finding it very easy to praise up the egalitarian parts of Dutour's uh, philosophy. And as to the war, Dutour explains that away. He says that the North and the South had always been fighting. Kalahua had hired riffraff Frenchmen, Frenchmen with muskets from the Sandwich Islands, having nothing to do with Dutour's settlers and therefore not able to be stopped. Dutour had meant, according to Vidal, 
to sail in with a show of force to get between the two sides, establish his colony, and win both sides over by example and persuasion. Yeah, every, everybody's got a good version of the alternative history of how their deeds would have panned out if only it hadn't been for those pesky kids. You know, every, every villain in Scooby-Doo knows this story. Right. Vidal points out how good Dutour is to his own men, continuing his narrative about who Dutour's a good guy. He talks about sitting up with his sick shipmates in the sick berth, not allowing them to be whipped by the master of the Franklin. And this conversation's going on well into the evening here. Eight bells. It's 4 a.m. now. And the watch changes and Granger comes on deck. And as this happens, Stephen slips off to his cabin, thinking in his very detached, slightly skeptical way here, there is something curiously pleasing about the Nippodolink's credulity, an amiable simplicity. And with that thought... Stephen falls asleep smiling. And what, what, what do you think? Would, would you be falling asleep at this point, Mike, with a, uh, a quiet smile on your face here? No, no. You know, I, I can't say as I agree with him. You know, I, hey, little work, everyone with an easy life, sign me up. But yeah, yeah, somehow, you know, in my experience, the folks at the top of all these classic societies are always wearing Rolexes and have servants like the Tard yeah. here. I'm I'm a little worried. I'm actually I'm I'm more than a little worried. <laughs> I don't trust this guy any further. We can throw him. No, no. And Stephen's taking this instant. Well, it's hard to say. It, it, Stephen's instantly skeptical about him, but for the time being, seems to be quite detached and sees him like a another uh, another rat in the in the O'Brien behavior lab here, and doesn't seem to want to do anything to change the influence that Stephen's having on the Nippodolings. Anyway. He also, as he wakes up, thinks about this simplicity and connects it with what he remembered of Clarissa. He says she too had had some of that simplicity. And uh, and, and Mike, the subtext here is we all know how that turned out, right? Right. <laughs> Stephen's up. He heads for morning rounds early. And Martin is there preparing the usual pox treatments. You know, he's preparing the, you know, the venereal disease remedies but Stephen, as he's coming down the hallway to the sick berth, sees a curious beetle on the floor and crawls quietly up on it to get it because it, it looks very unusual. He probably wants to get it for Sir Joseph Blaine. He picks it up and it's led him kind of right to the door of the sick berth. So he's down low. He's been you know, sneaking quietly up there. He looks up. He sees Martin mixing the last of the, of the venereal disease drafts and he drinks the last one off himself. Oh, Martin. Yeah. Right. Stephen watches this. He gets up and kind of coughs so as not to surprise Martin. And Martin whips around, gives this mechanical civil greeting, no spontaneous smile that he would usually have, and whips the glass under his apron. Now, Stephen's you know, kind of looking at him. Uh, it's clear from his appearance and, and, and the way he's reacted, as well as this you know, lack of a spontaneous smile, that he, you know, Martin seems to have resented his exclusion from the Franklin, ah, just yeah. as we thought. And he expects Stephen to be resenting his, Martin's, offensive remarks. But Stephen's thinking also that Martin just escaped being caught in an act that he's clearly willingly concealed and still has this remaining defiant hostility in his attitude. So, you know, I guess Stephen's thinking to himself, Martin's pretty well dug in here, man. Something is something is working him hard. Yeah, and it's like we're in traditional thriller mode here. Stephen's discovered something, and we've the the viewer or the the, the reader have, have, have kind of found the same thing. And now there's some tension about 
how are these two people going to resolve it? They, it doesn't seem like they can for very much longer maintain this polite distance kind of dancing around it. Something now seems to need to happen, and maybe it's going to happen in this chapter. Let's take a look. They go ahead and examine their patients together, and Stephen says that he wants to put two particularly difficult cases of pox on the Viennese treatment. And Martin says, well, lots of the pox authorities that I've read mention this, but he can't remember the principle. And this is a little bit of playing dumb here, I think, by Nathaniel Martin. Stephen says, well, it's Murias hydrargi. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Murias hydrargi corrosivus, which seems to be Latin for the corrosive solution of mercury. And I think I've heard Stephen describe this earlier in the canon as well as the corrosive sublimate of mercury. Martin says he's never seen them use that particular file. Stephen says he saves it for the most stubborn cases since there are such grave disadvantages to using it. And I don't think you have to be a PhD pharmacist to know what the disadvantages of ingesting mercury might be. As they're having this dialogue, Padine comes in, upset, saying there had been 10 glasses an hour ago, but now there are only nine. And very disingenuously, Martin comes in straight away and says, oh, sorry, I broke one and I forgot to tell Padine. And of course, this is the same Martin who a few lines ago had a glass hidden under his apron. So he's clearly hiding something. He's clearly going to lengths, to very awkward and sort of self-serving lengths to try and conceal what it is that he's up to. O'Brien now takes us out of this here. I I think he's leaving us, like you said, Ian, to to sit here with this tension for a minute. And he describes a difference between Jack's letters to Sophie and Stephen's letters to Diana. And he says that, you know, when Jack writes to Sophie, he writes with the intent of the letters reaching home and her reading them, even if he has to carry them home himself and then sit there and read them to her. But Stephen's are a little different. Not all the letters he writes to Diana, uh, he intends for her to read or he intends to yeah. send. Some you know, some are written to kind of stay in contact with her. And I, I know this. This is kind of my dear diary and my, you know, I, yeah. I do this a lot in, in long travels. Some are to clarify things in his own mind. Yep, guilty of that, too. And some are just for the pleasure or relief of saying things to her that here on the ship, he can't say to anyone else. So, you know, I, I want to talk to somebody about this. Ah, I know. I'll write my dear bride here. Well, a lot of those kinds of letters only last for a very short time. And I think I remember Stephen doing this in the past, you know, writing something down, kind of working it out, throwing it in the fire. <laughs> You're never to be seen by anybody again here. So now Stephen's writing and, you know, kind of O'Brien leaves it to us to decide what kind of letter is this? And he's telling her about that feeling you get sometimes when you solve a problem or a puzzle, and then you realize how obvious this should have been all along. He says, you know, he's been writing her and he's been thinking for a long time about this change in his relationship with Martin and this change in Martin himself and Martin's great unhappiness. And that he's, you know, he's mentioned all these different reasons to her, but today he believes he's stumbled upon what he calls the efficient cause. You know, this almost sounds like Occam's razor. Ah, I think I see the thing that slices right through. This is it. And that he really should have known all along. You know, when Martin was reading all these authorities on venereal disease, anything he can get his hands on, you know, he kept asking Stephen all these questions about getting infected by a toilet seat or drinking from the same cup or kissing or toying around and the like, you know, and, you know, I think Stephen's replaying all that is mine now going, oh my gosh, you know, why didn't I see this? And 
you know, Stephen can't tell whether Martin is, is actually physically infected in, unless he does an actual exam on him. But he says to himself, metaphysically, clearly Martin has the pox in a very bad way. And he knows that as a clergyman, Martin knows, in Stephen's words, the wish is the sin. And, and this idea of the yeah. wish is the sin, clear reference to Matthew 5, 27, 28, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who has looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's a, an NIV translation uh, in today's language here. But this idea, the wish is the sin. And therefore, Martin sees himself as diseased. You know, he knows he's had these thoughts uh, at, at the very least. And, you know, he's horrified that he's unclean without uh, pox as well as within, you know, kind of in his soul and his body here. Now, Stephen says that Martin took their disagreement from yesterday much more seriously than Stephen did. And under the present circumstances, because of this distance between them, you know, he would never at the moment consult Stephen as a physician. And Stephen reflects that self-hatred usually seems more likely to generate hatred of others, or at least surliness and a sense of grievance than mansuetude or meekness. So, you know, instead of becoming meek, (laughs) uh, this self-hatred generates this kind of, you know, hatred of others here. And I might, I would just want to ask that first of all, this, this reminds me of the story of the envoy in the 13 gun salute who we, we heard, we had, we had some self-hatred described to him a little bit here also in connection with, you know, his kind of, um, you know, his sexual peccadilloes, if you like, right. the right word. Um, but I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, Stevens just realized it, but I've seen this coming for quite a while now, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's fair because I'm reading these books and sort of building my memory back up of them as I go. Do, do you think on first reading we would have spotted this before Stephen did? Or do you think this is genuinely revelatory here to the rest of us as well as it is to Stephen? You, you know, it's a, it's a great question, Ian. I mean, clearly we knew that something was going on, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I think. And, and I knew that this, you know, the interactions with Clarissa had certainly you know, really done something to Martin's head, but this, it, this runs much deeper than that. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I, yeah. And I'm pretty sure Martin was t- described as being one of the people who had been seen coming and going to Clarissa's cabin. But anyhow, what, what, what we, what we probably didn't know and what Stephen certainly didn't know was just how deep, as you say, Mike, physically and metaphysically, this had stayed with Nathaniel Martin and what damage it's done to his character and to his person as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you know, Stephen's a little bit worried here. Yeah. yeah, because Martin is invited to dine in the cabin with his viola today. And Stephen is, you know, he really dreads some kind of eclat, uh, you know, because Martin is in such a nervous state. Now, this is this is a new one to me. It's not only French, but it has an 1820 engram. Yeah, uh, it, it means kind of a, a brilliant display, showiness, splendor, pomp, bluster, noise. You know, I, I, I would almost hazard to say perhaps what we would say, you know, kind of being over the top. And so, you know, Stephen's just worried what, you know, he's seen already how this kind of manifested with Martin yesterday with Stephen. And I think yeah. he's wondering, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen in this, 
you know, a little pressure cooker of this dinner with the cabin. And we know about Jack and Martin already. What's going to happen here? And I, I, I can't help but wonder myself. Yeah. And these yet another social occasion coming up here that's fraught with uncertainty and tension. All that uncertainty, Mike, all that tension. I, I think we need to take a step back here and just catch our breath and pause for a bit of our own mansuetude. <laughs> well, let's, let's take a quick break. And we'll be right back just as soon as we've managed to recover our composure here. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. I hope that your uh, your smalls are well laundered with fresh dew and that you're feeling comfortable in the parts right now. Um, let's see what the second half of the chapter has in store for us. We're still with Stephen and Nathaniel Martin and Patience and the Sick Bay here. Midshipman Reed has come to have the bandage changed on the stump of his left arm. And he tells Stephen that he wants to pass for lieutenant and that he needs a favor. Now that he says he's a tripod instead of a decapod. That is to say, he's short of one limb. He really needs to impress the examining captains because he's going to sit in front of a board examining him for his fitness to pass by lieutenant. And Reed has this idea that adding French nautical terms to his written journal would be a brilliant stroke. And he asks if Stephen would be willing to come with him and a French mate from the Franklin and write down the French for each item that Reed points to and that Colin translates. And Stephen says he's happy to help. This came somewhat out of left field for me, and I'm still not sure what we're meant to read into this this idea that you know this kid thinks that having French translations for for bowsprit netting is going to help him out here. I find it hard to imagine, but anyway, it's a very quaint thing, and Stephen's happy to help the midshipman. It does kind of bounce back across, you know, Jack's thinking earlier about what it takes to pass for lieutenant. Oh, if my French is really good. Oh, yes, of course. I'll really butter the board up here and they will love me. And I'm thinking, yeah. So how many, you know, how how good is Tom Pooling's French? Not probably great. Or if it is, it certainly wasn't when he was a midshipman, I suspect. That's a great observation. Yay, thank you. Anyhow, we we get back into the world of having dinner. This dinner, actually, that Stephen was quite worried about, was, was fearing some kind of outburst from Nathaniel Martin. It went quite well. Even though Martin does look drawn, he does look unwell, Martin plays the part of a cheerful, appreciative guest quite well. There were these two stories, and I I can't spot anything important in them in terms of symbolism or significance, but there was one about tickling a trout and another one about a cat that went missing and turned up a year later. Who, Who knows? Who knows? Right, right. Jack, meanwhile, compliments Martin on his viola playing. That's a really high praise i think coming from jack aubrey here a real big reach i think for maybe for jack trying to build a bit of bit of camaraderie a bit of friendship here with martin martin passes the credit for this improvement on to dutour who's helped him with his fingering his tuning and his bowing and martin says well this this cove dutour knows a lot about music and loves to play and i think he's kind of dropping the hint that it would be appreciated if jack would invite dutour into the cabin for some musical soirees here and jack sails right past that remark and meanwhile says goodbye to Tom as the meal wraps up here. So, Mike, maybe it's all okay. Maybe everything is fine now. Reed's arm has been bandaged up. Martin's reputation and relationship with the captain has been bandaged up, and we're all going to be okay, right? Right. This is Patrick O'Brien writing. We believe that, right? (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, you know, two days later, Dutourd approaches Stephen. I guess he's not you know, willing uh, to leave it alone with Martin making the request on his own behalf. And he asked Stephen if he would be too presumptuous to beg Matron to let the captain know how much that he would love to play in one of their sessions. And, and Stephen is at first surprised at how easily he says this until he recalls that, oh, yeah, wealthy men are used to having their wishes regarded. Yeah. And I thought, boy, this is this is you know this is Mister Equality in his in his rightful place here. You know that he's you know, he may have these ideas, but he still acts like who he is here. And Stephen, you know, kind of begs it off, says, "Well, the captain looks upon these as little informal, private affairs." And Dutard then asks Stephen, "What's going on aboard the Franklin?" And Stephen starts to explain what they're trying to do over there. And seeing that his explanation is not being understood, Stephen in French, says the crew of the Franklin is rigging out the four top gallant studding sail booms. Detourt is amazed that Stephen knows these in French. Ah, maybe now we know why Reed had this idea. O'Brien very cleverly (laughs) setting us up here. Ah, and, and, you know, now that he's kind of thinking about how really good Stephen's French is, he says, you know, I believe that I met you at Madame Roland's. Stephen says, no, 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 no. It must have been my cousin, Dominova. And we remember now, Stephen was really worried about this and has been kind of sailing clear that, you know, Dutard doesn't remember him. Now he does. And Dutard asks him, well, how did you come to have a cousin named Dominova? Stephen <laughs> looks astonished. And Dutard realizes that he's been impertinent. I mean, he's, you know, one personal question after another now. Stephen walks off, but, you know, while he's walking off kind of pretending that he's offended at all these impertinent questions, he's actually walking off worrying that he's been recognized here. Um, And that Dutard might even have a vague notion of what Stephen is doing on this ship and why they're in this part of the world. And he realizes that this entire time, Dutard has had this real look of self-confidence on his face, like, I'm going to get what I want. I've, you know, I've got the upper hand in this situation. Yeah, that's, mm. that's worrying, Stephen. Yeah, it is. So how, how is this going to play out then? We've, we've got to wonder here. This whole idea of having his identity blown open, is, we've always known that it's important for Stephen Maturin. We know that it's important because we put off the whole trip to South America while it was possible that the Spanish government had smelled some kind of a rat. And now we, we've we we've come across a fresh rat all of our own here with this guy Dutour, and it seems like it could put everything into jeopardy. Right. And we know what happened the last time Stephen's identity was blown on an yeah, entire Yeah, yeah. Bad things happened. Yeah. Anyhow, Stephen walks in on Jack, who's busy with a set of figures. Jack asks, what's 12 sixes and... And Stephen, clearly not Jack's best ever help in terms of mental arithmetic, says 92, to which the correct answer is 72. Who knows why he overshot by, by 20. Stephen says that his shirt is like a silice with salt. And Jack says, wait, hang on a second, the silice, what is that? And we get this explanation of how it's a penitential garment of the harshest cloth known to man and worn next to the skin by saints and hermits. It's part of the idea of the mortification of the flesh, uh, worn by anxious sinners. And this idea of the silice will be well known to all of you who are avid Dan Brown readers who can remember the monk Silas in the Da Vinci Code. 
A, the first and only time we're going to mention Dan Brown in the same context as Patrick O'Brien, and B, interestingly, a character played in the movie by Paul Bettany. So there you go. So this silly, a penitential device for inflicting casual pain for every, for every minute of the day. And it, it's curious that that occurs to Stephen. And it's curious that he's mentioning this as he comes from a conversation with Martin, who's clearly in his own world of penitential misery here. And Jack is totting up. N- nothing to do with penitential misery at all. He's thinking about prize money, I'm going to guess here. And Stephen mentions this old kind of tag that pride goeth before destruction. We should come back to where that comes from in a second. But he realizes that he'd been so proud of knowing the names of the spas in English, much less knowing them in French, that he had begun to blab like a fool and that he, Stephen, deserves a hair shirt and perhaps even therefore a silice. Jack finishes off his calculation. He says, there's no hope of rain, meaning rain to wash the salt out of anybody's shirt, and announces that since he's been reckoning and dividing up the prize accounts, he doesn't have any figure for the specie held aboard the Franklin. That's to say the gold coin money, but that's likely to be a good amount. And he's pretty happy that everybody's going to be happy overall with the amount that he's about to be able to point to and then divide up amongst the crew. And Mike, t- t- take us back here. Let's dig into pride goes before destruction or in kind of 20th century English, pride comes before a fall. I'm going to guess that that's a that's a, a, a genuine copper-bottomed biblical quotation as well. Ah, it is indeed. Ian. Yeah, this is Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. In the original King James, and of course, King James, good enough for us. He was a good sailor, right? Yeah. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And as you say, and we, you know, we kind of leave out a little of that, you know, before destruction and get right to the pride goeth before a fall. The verse goes on, better it is to be a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Hmm. Now, this is it's another fascinating little O'Brien Easter egg. This is exactly what Jack is doing. He's dividing the spoils now. Now, you know, just to kind of bring us a little bit more into the scene, the, the NIV translation is, Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. And I think, you know, what we're raising here, what O'Brien is so brilliantly raising in this thing is, you know, so in this story now that we're in, who who are the proud here? Who are the oppressed? Uh, and and I think these are kind of fluid characters. And, and how do they see themselves and see each other here? And it might be interesting to keep this in mind as, as we go through this book. It's probably great to keep it in mind as we go through life. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Very good. So, and, and Jack is a simple soul. He's just happy to be reckoning out how much this surprise money is going to mean for all of the officers and the uh, the shareholding crew members aboard the surprise here. In reply to the idea of a, of a likely very large number being uh, distributed, Stephen says, very good. To predatory creatures like myself, there is something wonderfully fetching about a prize. The very word evokes a smile of concupiscent, that is to say, lustful greed. And this doesn't sound like the oppressed. And he's a self-confessed prideful person. Um, I can't help but wondering if Stephen isn't playing along with Jack here and he's just joining in the banter. Yeah. He's reminded of the Franklin and therefore tells Jack that Dutour would like him to know that he, Dutour, would be glad of an invitation to play music with Jack. And Jack says, well, he could tell that from Martin's earlier 
comment and thinks it's impertinent. A most uncommon stroke of effrontery, as Jack calls it. A fellow with wild, bloody, regicide, revolutionary ideas like Tom Paine and Charles Fox and all those wicked fellows at Brooks's and that adulterous cover. I forget his name, but you know who I mean. I do not believe I am acquainted with any adulterers, Jack, said Stephen. <laughs> which is which is a nice little dig on Stephen's part, right? Jack is clearly miffed about the whole thing. And Stephen's digging at him here. He says, I'm sitting with you, Jack. I don't believe I've known any of your adulterers. The, the, the pot and the kettle are at least an equivalently dark shade of black here. But we're going to come on to which adulterer we're talking about and which one Jack has in mind. Clue, it's not himself uh, later in the chapter. Jack says detoured with no letter of mark or commission is, in his words, next door to a pirate, if not actually bound for the execution dock. Jack wouldn't invite him to the cabin if he was a second Tartini, which, of course, Jack says he's not. And we've talked about Tartini before. Jack dislikes everything he's heard about Dutard. His enthusiasm, democracy, benevolence, a pretty state of affairs, he says. And again, it's it's all hard on the surface here. It's, you know, who's the proud? Who's the oppressed? Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys here? You know, some of this stuff sounds really good, but, you know, some and, of it, we know how it turns out. And, and maybe there's a bit of hypocrisy here. Yeah. Because in, in Jack's code of a well-conducted mess, you can talk together and sit at the same table. And as long as you don't discuss politics, you can all be shipmates. But he's kind of saying, in the case of Dutoured, you're not allowed to sit at my table because of your politics. And that places Jack in a, in a in a less than completely virtuous position here. If we're going to be tough with ourselves about the, you know, the 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 equality with which all these rules and social conventions get applied. Well, it's true. And then we've got Dutard in the gun room, who, you know, having been told you can't talk politics, talks politics all the more. So, yeah, you know, it reminds me of the old story about the two old Quaker gentlemen, and you know, he says, "Well, brother, you know, all have sinned and fallen short, except for me and thee." But sometimes, brother, I worry about thee. <laughs> Isn't it all us here? You know, we're it, truth, truth of the matter is we're all in this together here. Again, it's hard to tell who's who. But Jack does admit, kind of in the same vein, that Dutord stood up well for his men, you know. And Jack admires that because that's who Jack is. Stephen tells Jack that some of the surprises think really highly of Dutard and admire his ideas. And Jack replies, I know they do. We have some hands from Shelmerston, decent men and prime seamen who are a little better than Democrats, Republicans, if you follow me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm using that word as, as an equivalent. And would easily be led astray by a clever political cove with a fine flow of words. But the men of war's men, particularly the old surprises, do not like him. They call him Monsieur Turd. And they will not be won round by smirking and leering and the brotherhood of man. They dislike his notions as much as I do. Boy, this is this is real life here. You know, yeah. here we are. You know, they don't they they don't have social media for echo chambers, but we no. know who do, right? <laughs> yeah, hum, humans can make echo chambers all of their own here, right? Well, Stephen kind of joins in on this reflection of the uh, the weaknesses in purely kind of utopian egalitarian politics. He says that he had had great hopes for his fellow man back in 1789, which is the, the French Revolution. But he's surprised that a man of Dutour's age and parts still goes on this way today. So he's kind of saying that Dutour is behaving a bit like a sophomore, a big teenager, when with the benefit of the experience that he's had, he could be a bit more wise. 
Stephen believes that the only thing he agrees with Dutour on now is slavery. And Jack sticks his foot in his mouth as usual, saying although he wouldn't like himself to be a slave, Nelson, he hears, was in favour of it, and that it is, uh, it's, it's a support to the country's shipping industry. And Jack remembers Stephen tearing to pieces the person that they called that unfortunate scrub Bosville years ago in Barbados for saying that slaves liked slavery and that doing away with slavery would shut the gates of mercy to slaves. Jack is really surprised at Stephen's strong language, the strongest that Jack had ever heard from Stephen on this occasion, and was surprised that he hadn't caused Bosville to ask for satisfaction. And Mike, it, 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 it's really interesting that we... The readers weren't present at this exchange. This happened at a time outside of the events of the canon. But Jack remembers it very clearly, and he really remembers how much it riled up Stephen. Stephen says, back in his present-day self, absolutely. See, I feel more strongly about slavery than anything, even that vile Bonaparte. Stephen would have been happy to give this guy, Bosville, satisfaction with lead or steel, although he says ratsbane would have been more appropriate. And Jack notices what a passion Stephen is in. As Stephen responds with another one of P.O. Bray's great imprecations, set of big stacks of adjectives. He's talking about Bosville here. So I am, he says, it is a retrospective passion, sure, but I feel it still. Thinking of that ill-looking, flabby, ornamented, conceited, self-complacent, ignorant, shallow, mean-spirited, cowardly young shite with absolute power over 1,500 blacks makes me fairly tremble even now. It moves me to grossness. I should have kicked him if ladies had not been present. And I'm, I'm sitting back here applauding. Stephen, take a bow. I mean, that's, that's first class, genuinely, uh, that's the proper egalitarianism right there. Um, that is a massive contrast with the slightly mannered, slightly self-serving version of egalitarianism that Dutour is bringing. Stephen's got passionate commitment to reversing genuine injustice yes. and that's got echoes now it's got echoes of you know what we know about the life circumstances of sam panda and a bunch of other black people that have, we've encountered in the canon it's got echoes that we're going to come back to later in the canon no no spoilers but this is a, a topic that we're going to return to and it's absolute the the, the darkness of the dark side of, of human character now bosville b-o-s-v-i-l-l-e mike i'm i'm pretty sure is a uh, is, is a made-up name, but we think there might be a connection to a real-world person. Who might that be? We do, and 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 we have it on great authority. Don Seltzer, you know, uh, the yeah. the head of the Gun Room, a sage, a long-time Patrick O'Brien fan, a fabulous researcher, and somebody who's been very gracious to us. Helped up, you know. I, I think my first time through the canon, I would have been nowhere without him and the Gun Room to to kind of help step me through it here. And he points out, along with others in the gunroom, that Bosville is either a disguise or a mistranscription of James Boswell, whose outspoken defense of slavery on commercial grounds included all the arguments that Stephen had presented here. You know, he wrote a thing called No Abolition of Slavery or The Universal Empire of Love, a poem in 1791. And just to be clear, the, the universal empire of that's a description of slavery as a vehicle for love to one's fellow man. That's a really, really warped and dark picture of slavery. Oh, ab- absolutely. This is, you know, in actually in the text, there was some more detail here, Stephen and, and Jack are talking about it, that, you know, this idea was if we abolish slavery, we would close all the doors of mercy that these loving owners 
you know, are lavishing upon their slaves and, you know, that they're, you know, all the way they're being helped into society. And it's just like, ah, ah. And, and it's interesting in, in, you know, there's, a, you know, Anthony Gary Brown's the, the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, which we refer to so often here. He's got a published on the web, you know, set of corrections to, you know, one of his earlier editions. And he mentions that Boswell, you know, it's mentioned here, and, and you know, I, I get back to you on Boswell. Boswell is a very, you know, we know Boswell, had actually never come to the new world, that even though these thoughts are his and everything else, setting him in Barbados and having an encounter with Stephen, the thoughts are true, the, the you know, the time and Barbados are not. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is, I had to look twice here thinking, is this the Boswell? Is this the companion and biographer of Samuel Johnson? Yes, it is. It's the same Boswell. And what's really fascinating is that Boswell had originally been an abolitionist. He was present at the meeting of the Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade in 1787, set up to persuade William Wilberforce to lead the abolition movement in Parliament. Wilberforce, to whom there is now a statue in Hull as a great leader of the campaign to avoid slavery in, in Britain. However, as recorded by the abolitionist Thomas Clarkson, by 1788, just a year later, Boswell, having initially supported the cause of abolition, became inimical to it. So at some point, something happened to completely flip Boswell's position, and he became an anti-abolitionist, a pro-slavery campaigner in the rest of his life. Wow, and I, I, I never knew that about Boswell. I never knew that about this particular corner of the history of slavery. Really fascinating. It really is, boy. And they did all that without Twitter. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack asked to see Mr. Dutord in 10 minutes. And when the word reaches Dutord, he turns from Martin with a smile. You know, he's just <laughs> certain. Ah, my invitation to play music in the cabin is going. Ah, I'm getting my way. And, you know, as I mentioned last time, I, I, I felt like he was standing in the shadows trying to get into the heart of the surprise here. Yeah. But. In the cabin, Jack tells Dutard that he's, you know, he's calculating, he's casting his prize money accounts, and he needs to know the amount of specie, bills of exchange, and the like carried in the Franklin, and he needs to know, you know, where Dutard kept it, where is it hidden? And Dutard's expression changes from confident, pleasurable anticipation to its opposite and from lively intelligence to pale stupidity, all of a sudden, you know, you know, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't, you know. Well, Jack tells him that the money taken from former prizes that when you know when they recover all this from the Franklin, that all that's going to be returned to them. He's not keeping that. He's going to give it back to the people that that uh, Dutard took it from, and that the Franklin's remaining treasure will be shared out among her captives according to the laws of the sea. Now, Detard's private purse and his private property will be left to him. You know, he says, you know, we're not we're not taking your money. We're not taking your private property. We're taking the stuff that the Franklin had that didn't belong to somebody else that, you know, you've accumulated in your piracy here. But I need you to write down all these amounts. You know, before we get this, I want you to make an accounting for it. Then tell us where to find it. We'll reconcile the books here. And Detard finally realizes that that he really can't protest and that actually, this is much better treatment than he put all the Franklin's prisoners through. They were all stripped bare immediately, and everything was taken from them for all time here. Now, he had, he, Dutard, had gotten his hopes up because he's been now aboard the Surprise for such a long time, and nothing's 
been taken from him. It says, a pause between capture and destitution so unlike the instant looting he had seen before. And, and I would say, you know, that he had kind of instigated before. He thinks to himself, Vivictus, forgive me for my Latin, uh, Latin for woe to the vanquished or woe to the conquered meaning sort of don't expect or request any leniency if you've been conquered here. So it's kind of like, oh, well. And he hands Jack two keys saying he hopes his former shipmates, some grasping fellas, were not there before the captain. Yeah. 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 He's been doing all this looting, all this plundering. And now, you know, all these, you know, equality of man people back on the ship, you know, I hope they didn't steal it before you because, you know, they're all thieves at heart and everything. And I keep wondering, you know, who's the proud? Who's the oppressed? Who are the oppressors? You know, kind of following our our thinking through this chapter here. Indeed. Dutour in a difficult position here. And I, I wonder if he realizes it really, really to his heart. We'll see. Later that day, a heavy chest comes aboard the surprise from the Franklin. And the text says it came aboard... Not to cheers, for that would not have been manners, but to great cheerfulness and goodwill. Stephen had been unaware of this because he'd been spending time um, with a cephalopod collection and dissecting a recently caught decapod, which had attached itself to the salt beef hanging over the side of the ship. He had to hurry for Mr. Vidal, whose squid it was, this cephalopod, um, and he had promised it to the gun room for today's feast because surf and turf is still a thing, right? And calamari will count for surf just, just nicely. On this day, for years, in Shelmerston, forgetting all differences of creed, people had lit bonfires and danced around them singing a chant whose meaning was now lost, but which, as late as Leland's time, was clearly in honour of the goddess Frigg. And even today, the words retain such power that, as Stephen knew, no Shelmerstonian born and bred would willingly omit them. So there's lots of nice layers to this little piece here, Mike. First of all, we've got the, um, the, the nice moment of sectarians who battle each other over the fine points of theology are all willing to sing together over an ancient goddess's holiday with you know in, in ancient words here we're going to come back to leyland in a second I, I love this reference to frigg this this is both a genuine bit of norse mythology and i think a bit of o'brien potty humor frigg is an old norse goddess one of the gods of the principal pantheon in nordic religions including odin and frigg and thor and baldur she is the wife of odin and in norse mythology the source of which is the source of most surviving information about her. She's associated with marriage, with prophecy, with clairvoyance and motherhood. The English weekday name Friday ultimately means Frigg's day, hence the name of the day. Uh, And after Christianization, the mention of Frigg continued to occur in Scandinavian folklore. And during modern times, Frigg has appeared in popular culture, been the subject of art and received some veneration in German neo-paganism. And besides being a proper bit of Norse mythology, I think it got picked by O'Brien because Frick is a kind of low-key, mildly less egregious swear word that sailors like compared to that other F-bomb, uh, as in show me the freaking money, Jack Aubrey. So maybe a, a, a tongue slightly in the cheek there from O'Brien. Take us further back, Mike. What about Leyland? Who was he? Yeah, I was saying back in Leyland's time that John Leyland uh, from 1503 to 1552 a renowned English antiquary, you know, a person who collects and studies antiques, later the royal chaplain to King Henry VIII. 
Huh. And, you know, he, he wrote extensively about antiquarian religious matters in England. So he would have written about these kind of earlier religions here. Wow. So lots to dig into in just one paragraph from O'Brien there. As we've been dissecting the paragraph, Stephen Maturin's been dissecting his cephalopod, his squid. Sarah comes up and says, Jemmy Duck says, Monsieur Turd's nose is saddled out of joint. He kicked Jean Potin's ass. Jean Potin is his servant. And Stephen tells her off, says, you're not to say Monsieur Turd, and you're not to say arse. And he's noticing that this disdainful name that was described to us as a new thing by Jack just a paragraph or two ago is actually now pretty common amongst the old surprises. Anyway, having finished off with the dissecting of the squid, Stephen turns to a frigate bird. That syllable frig comes in here again, no coincidence. Right. <laughs> he's skinned many of these and he's carefully described their plumage but this is the first time he's properly dissected one. He's really interested in how they fly. And there's something about their anatomy that's and their flight that's more remarkable than that of an albatross. It says, He had scarcely laid bare the breast before he had a premonition that he might be on the verge of the finest anatomical study of his career. And we know that Stephen has made and shared zoological discoveries about the bones of birds before, but he thinks this could be the one to top them all. And as this discovery is just on the brink of his uh, of his uh, awareness here, he thinks, well, he, he can't hear all the commotion on deck. He can't hear what's happening as the crew watches the captain and Mr. Adams and a few trusted hands going through the treasure that's come aboard from the Franklin, converting it into Spanish and reckoning the shares. He leaves the dissection in the end to get dressed and to go to the gun room for dinner. And Mike, another dinner, more, more social tension? Surely, surely we've had enough of this already in this chapter. Yeah, it really is something. O'Brien is, is rolling out, you know, not leaving a stone unturned in his ability to convey what's going on between people. And, and he sets us up nicely, you know, because we've got some more people in the gun room now. Martin is actually seated next to Stephen. And Stephen is so excited. He's recounting in detail this great anatomical discovery. And Martin doesn't seem to understand the significance. You know, Stephen's kind of looking at him and going, he's not, you know, he's not as exciting as he should be. You know, I've just, you know, put landed a man on the moon here. So Stephen explains that the rigid bone structure supporting flight that he's just described is unique among existing birds. And Martin replies, it is of some interest if your example was not a sport and perhaps it justifies <laughs> taking the bird's life away. But how often have we seen hecatombs, that is an ancient public sacrifice of a hundred oxen, that yield nothing of significance, hundreds and hundreds of stomachs opened, all with much the same result. Even Mr. White of Selborne shot very great numbers. Sometimes I feel that dissection may take place merely to warrant the killing. Now, this, yeah, this is the second time that Martin has severely and now clearly intentionally, you know, just stomped on Stephen's joy. Yeah. Um, and O'Brien writes, Stephen had often known patients eager to be disagreeable, a common morbid irritability, especially in putrid fevers, but it was almost invariably kept for their friends and relations, rarely extending to their medical men. On the other hand, although Martin was undoubtedly sick, Stephen was not in fact his physician, nor was it likely that Martin would consult him. Now, you know, I'm waiting to see what is Stephen going to do with this. He's, you know, he's a better man than I am if he's going to let this go. I think I would be 
you know, extending my dissection. Sorry. Yeah. Well, we, we've got to hope that he can be as forbearing with Nathaniel Martin as he was with the, the Bosville, the pro-slavery guy, just a few paragraphs ago, because we're clearly pretty close to that level, I think, here. Well, well put. Stephen turns to Mr. Granger and outwardly praises the squid soup, <laughs> while inwardly, O'Brien writes that he's wounded, deeply disappointed, far from pleased. Oh, boy. It, wow. This is a meal that's not going well here. And, and, and by the way, I like this reference to Mr. White of Shelbourne. This was a, a Gilbert White who lived in the late 18th century, a naturalist and writer famed for his graceful literary style. And we have it on some authority that White's work was a favorite of the young Charles Darwin and might have been an influence on Patrick O'Brien and influenced O'Brien's own writing style. So if you want to get hold of some proto-O'Brien for yourself, go find the writings of Gilbert White. Anyhow, Stephen's not the only one with a, with a nose out of joint working hard to maintain his composure. Dutour is also trying to keep up an outwardly civil appearance and holds Stephen to some degree responsible for the difficult situation he's in. Granger and Vidal and the rest of the privateers who've all come to like Dutour realize that this is the first time he's ever been taken. He's ever been on a ship where the ship was taken. So it's the first time he's been stripped of his possessions in this way, even though he's been the, the stripper, more or less, on other uh, occasions. And so they're treating him with a kind of deferential gentleness, a bit like they would do to someone who's been recently bereaved. And as Dutour's voice rises, Stephen realizes that Dutour is on the middle of a discourse on Rousseau. Oh yeah, the, the black thief Rousseau and the proper education of children. And at this, Stephen tunes out. I can almost visualize Stephen's eyes kind of rolling back in his head at this point. And later on, seeing Stephen's glare as he thinks about Martin and thinking it's a personal reflection, Dutour asks Stephen if he shares their opinion about Rousseau. And this is tricky ground for Stephen. Stephen says, I don't know much about him, but I've heard his theories and read his book, Confessions that reminded him, that reminded Stephen of a priest cousin of his who hated listening to people making false confessions and then having to forgive what might be a blasphemous absolution. And Dutour asks then if he doubts Rousseau's truthfulness. And we get another great speech from Stephen here. He knows this stuff. He's thought about his position on this. He really can lay it down for, for Dutour here. You will recall, says Stephen, that in this book, he speaks of four or five children his mistress bore him, children that were at once dismissed to the foundling hospital. Now, this does not agree very well with his praise of the domestic affections, still less with his theories of education in Emile. So unless I was to think of him as a hypocrite whilst bringing up the young was concerned, I was compelled to regard him as a begetter of false babies. And Stephen's deadly serious, but this gets a laugh. This gets a howl of laughter from the ransomers at the end of the table, the idea of being a begetter of false babies. And now Dutour is really pissed off. Uh, and injured. Those children can perfectly well be explained to a candid mind, cried Dutour over the hubbub, but where there is a fixed prejudice, an evident hatred of progress and enlightenment, a love of privilege and outworn custom, a denial of the essential goodness of man, a settled malevolence, I have nothing to say. <laughs> so now we have a few things revealed. Besides being reminded of Stephen's dislike for the false confidences uh, of Rousseau that he talked about way back in Treason's Harbour, we know now who the adulterer uh, Jack was referring to earlier on with Stephen. It's Rousseau that he was talking about. Stephen bows to Dutour 
maintains his calm, takes his leave with the host and proposes a toast to Shelmiston that everybody joins in with. So, wow. Well, well done, Stephen. I, I think well done. Anyhow. Back in the cabin, you know, Stephen confesses to Jack that in, in a wicked, vile temper, he's flown out at Dutourde and at Rousseau. And Jack says Dutourde was in an ugly frame of mind, too, when Jack made him give up the Franklin's money. And now Stephen realizes what Emily and Sarah were talking about. You know, he did not realize he had been in his room, as we heard, hadn't heard this, hadn't seen this. You know, and Jack starts to tell Stephen about some of the unusual gold pieces that they found here. So we just have this one mention of this one coin that they can barely see. But if you kind of hold it sideways, this is what comes up. So anybody out there knows what that is, please let us know. Well, after coffee, Stephen tells Jack about his frigate bird discovery. And, and it's beautiful. He's drawing it on the table with wine, just like Jack draws a battle scene, usually with where the ships are positioned. And Jack is very interested saying that it almost exactly resembles a specific ship's kind of rigging. Steph is aboard, allowing the ship to fairly fly along, and he believes that there's a parallel. Well, this, you know, Stephen's finally got somebody listening empathetically to, to this and enjoying the discovery. Stephen asks him to come next door to examine the bones and see what he thinks, saying, but you will never dislike a little blood and slime, you know, thinking, you know, Jack's in the middle of these, you know, big battles. Really not, but... You know, as long as he's known Jack, he still doesn't realize that Jack does not like cold blood and cold slime <laughs> no. at all. But I just love that Jack, being such a good friend, knowing how excited his good friend Stephen is, goes anyway, you know, puts his hands in all the blood and slime. And in the midst of this carnal house reek of the unfinished dissection, confirms the parallel. Yep, yep, this is just like, you know, the way the sails are rigged out, you know, exactly what you are. And he's delighted to get back into fresh air here. Oh, poor Jack. I think I'd be with him as well. I've got to say that I, I wonder if there's a connection between this slightly icky moment with anatomy here with the dead bird and this, the slightly icky sensation that I got when Stephen was talking about poor Thomas Pullings's cheek and jaw joint being disarticulated. It was, you know, it seems like there's something to do with the connection of Stephen and laying his hands on bones and the things that he does with them. I, I don't know. Well, and, and it's interesting to me that, you know, we just had in Clarissa Oaks, you know, one of the amazing things that she's so kind to Tom despite his injury. Yeah. And to your point, now, for the first time, we've gotten a real feel for what that injury is like. Yeah, it's been sliced through. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Well, we, we've been hearing about it for long enough. We've been, uh, we've been anticipating it for most of this chapter now. Like the crew, we're ready to hear about the distribution of the prize money. So we know how this goes. Um, Jack calls all hands aft, and we know that he's going to distribute the money right there and then. Having heard earlier on from Killick, and seen the counting out taking place after the chest had come aboard, everyone in the crew is already there, clean, sober, and well-shaved. Jack has Adams read out the muster book, and each hand, when his name is called, steps forward to receive his share of gold and coins. And after the last man collects his distribution, all merriment, it says, all merriment was cut to instant silence by the hail from the masthead. On deck there, object, fine on the starboard bow, which I believe it's a barrel. There you go. End of chapter five. A cute little juxtaposition there of treasure and prize money with a barrel sighted on the horizon. Fantastic stuff. 
Now, we're not going to find out where the barrel is. Um, maybe we're going to find out when we turn the page and take a look at chapter six, Mike. But there's been a huge amount going on in this chapter already, hasn't there? Well, there really has been. I mean, you know, clearly O'Brien has slowly been building up the tension between Martin and Stephen. And so now pretty much brought it to a boil here. Yeah. Um, we've got this continuing something going on with Dutard and the uh, the Nipper Dollings, which now has, we've got Vidal singing uh, Dutard's praises, Stephen and Jack realizing how, you know, how much you know, com- camaraderie there is now. And, uh, you know, Brian keeps in the midst of a great story, doling out these insights into the way we behave to one another. Yeah, you know, these yeah. ideas about philosophy and religion, tradition, the Royal Navy, the privateersmen, the old surprises. Um, you know, it, it's like we've taken a great new approach in, in, you know, there's this approach that, you know, I'm going to drop Clarissa Oaks in as a catalyst and see what happens. Well, now, you know, you know we put that on steroids. Now I'm going to drop in all these things, you know, right? all these things together and see what happens here. Wow. It's, uh, and we, we were talking about the last book as having been kind of deep and with a bit of darkness and a bit of personal drama, D- despite having had the excitement of the the chase and the volcanoes in the first couple of chapters, Mike, this book is turning out again to have lots of darkness and personality-led drama, lots of character-led drama here, which, to be honest, does seem to be O'Brien's happy place here. Um, still lots to find out. Still lots to find out about how well these people are going to get along together. We've got Jack and Stephen, probably... In, in, in their happy place, but they're going to be separated quite shortly, I think. We've got the Nippodollings and the Sethians also separated for now. We've got Jack and Stephen respectively separated from their spouses. Um, we've got Dutour now separated from his treasure. Lots of people have been separated. I wonder what kind of joining might be coming for us in the coming chapters. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. You know, at times I sort of think I, I've got a feeling for where this might be headed, but I always remind myself, this is Patrick O'Brien writing. And, and even though... He's always dropping the breadcrumbs. He's always signaling and telegraphing, you know, putting everything you need to know there. He still surprises you. And I suspect we'll be surprised and pleased as the story unfolds. I I don't think this is going to be any more of a straight line than the other (laughs) three books of this mission have been so far. Well, who who knows even if we're going to make it to find out what's in the barrel by next chapter. But Mike, I think I think there's only one thing for it. With the barrel floating on the horizon there, what do you say next week to just a little tiny bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. as best that he can he doesn't have any frigger frigger sorry (laughs) he doesn't have any figure for the species